Let's pray together one more time as we uh, prepare to consider the word of the Lord together. God, we acknowledge that you are great. You are great beyond our understanding. You are great beyond comparison to anything else. And yet, Lord, in your wisdom and in your love, you've chosen to reveal yourself in your creation, to reveal yourself in your Son through Jesus Christ, to reveal yourself in your Word. So, God, I pray over these next few moments as we consider your Word together, Lord, that you would speak by the truth of your Word. Convict us by by your Holy Spirit that we might Walk fully in alignment with you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, one of the joys that I have had over the years is to participate in weddings. I got a chance to participate in one a couple weeks ago, and there's a big one coming up in a couple of months. And it is it is a sheer joy just to get to be a part of it. I've I've been able to be the groom, I've been able to be a best man, a groomsman, um, an usher, and that was quite exciting because I was standing in the rain. We had torrential downpours, and I'm wearing a tux, opening doors, standing outside trying to get people. It was very exciting, um, and it's just a joy. I love weddings most of the time. Yeah, we hear, we hear about bridezillas and things like that. But did you know that there are some wedding parties where it's not about the bride? There's, it's not really a bridezilla situation or a groomzilla, if that's a thing. But it's a bridesmaidzilla. And what I mean is that there are times, you know, when you have the attendance, if we were to do a wedding up here, we might have the bride and the groom and they've got people standing on either side. At least that's just the way that we've come to develop it here in America. And, and those people are there to attend to the bride and the groom, right? And, and yet there are times when sometimes the bridesmaids and the groomsmen lose track of the fact that they're there for these two people. We ran into this a few years ago, actually many, many years ago. We were a part of a wedding and, uh, I was, I was in the groom's party and Danielle was just an attendant. She was just watching. She just was there, you know, my escort, if you will. And so she happened, as she does, she's very perceptive. She happened to check in on the bride just to see how she was doing. Well, she found that the bride was in a room all by herself. Completely abandoned by all of her bridesmaids. And yet there was Danielle, not even having a job to do at this wedding. She said, hey, how can I help you? And that happened early on in our marriage. And I've watched with joy as we've participated in different weddings. Sometimes we have jobs and sometimes we don't. But one of Danielle's gifts is that ability to see this is about that woman. This is about that man. And I want to honor them. I want to make sure that this day is special for them. And I, and I bring that up because, you know, just then as, as an attendant at a wedding party, even a guest at a wedding party, 
they have a, we have a role to play. But it's not about us. It's about the bride and the groom and the covenant that they're making together. And, and John the Baptist, if, if you caught what Charlotte read earlier, John the Baptist really views himself as someone standing to the side of the groom. Preparing the groom, preparing the way for him to have this beautiful wedding, this beautiful celebration. We saw a few weeks ago, as we've been studying the book of John, that John the Baptist really saw himself and he was called out to be a forerunner of Jesus. Called out to prepare the way, to let people know, hey, I'm, 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 it's not about me, it's about him who's coming. So get ready. And so today we're going to continue looking in John chapter 3. And if you have your, your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open there. We don't have as many slides this morning. Um, so a lot of the passages that we'll read, you want to be able to refer to them in, in your copy of, of the Bible or, or in the pew Bible that's in front of you. And today, you see, as we walk through this, we're going to get to see John's how John views himself even more. Okay, um, but let me set the stage because John's clarity about who he is and, and his role in Jesus' ministry really begins with a baptism battle. Or does it? And, and I raise that as a question because it wasn't really a battle. It wasn't that Jesus and John the Baptist were battling with each other. But that's what his people, that's what J- John's disciples sort of perceived was going on. So let's, let's consider by, by reading verses 22 to 26 again. And I want, want to just encourage you to have that fresh in your mind. So, so after this, this is after Jesus and Nicodemus had their conversation. That's what we talked about last week. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and, and was baptizing. And John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem. Because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. I love how, how, how the Apostle John throws in these little parenthetical statements. Things that he would assume that we knew that, that was happening. And he continues. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness... Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So is uh, one of the there's a couple interesting things that we find in this passage. This is actually the only time we see that Jesus has a ministry of baptism. This is the only time that the gospel writers tell us Jesus baptized or his disciples baptized. We don't really get to learn about that very often. I actually nowhere else in scripture. But they were both out there, Jesus and his disciples, John the Baptist and his disciples in two different places, calling people to repentance, calling people to get baptized. And let me show you a little map just to give you a feel for, for where these are. If you see, I realize it's a little hard to see, but down, you see the big body of water down on the bottom. That is the Dead Sea. Well, Jesus and his disciples were just a little bit north of that, likely along the Jordan. That's where they considered the Judean countryside, the Judean wilderness. And a little more than halfway up to that other smaller body of water, the Sea of Galilee, that's where about 60% of the way up, that's where John the Baptist and his guys were. So there's a little distance between them. And yet somehow John's disciples knew that something else was going on. And I almost wonder if it comes out with this dispute, with this conversation they have with this Jewish man. 
So this guy comes by and he's talking to John's disciples and we don't know exactly how this came about, but it's almost like they got word about Jesus' baptizing ministry from this guy. A lot of people, a lot of Jews in that day, assumed that John's baptism was a ritual Jewish baptism. It was a cleansing. You see, in those days, a lot of uh, the, the rite of purification or that rite of cleansing was something that many Jews would do on a daily basis. They would bathe themselves in cold water. How would you like that as a wake-up call? But they would bathe themselves in cold water just to get ready, to make sure they were ceremonially clean. And yet we know that that's not what John's baptism was about. In Matthew chapter 3, see, John the, John the Apostle doesn't tell us much about why John baptized, but John the, uh, but Matthew uh, gives us some insight. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John says, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He's, he's doing a baptism not of cleansing, but of repentance, of turning. And then he continues in chapter three, verse, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. See, John is clearly not concerned with ritual purification. He wants something different. And his disciples are concerned. Jesus is doing that too. Can two people do the same thing? And I find it interesting that John the Apostle, when he writes this, he tells us, he gives us this little bit of insight. If you look back in John chapter 3, look in your Bibles and verse 25, he says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. As I've been thinking about that this week, I was thinking, why in the world does John include that? Why did the Holy Spirit lead John? Because it almost seems like a parenthetical statement that has no ramification to anything. They had a conversation because the very next thing, if you look in verse 26, the next thing they they say, and they came to John, Rabbi, basically Jesus is baptizing too, and everybody's going to him. So why bring up this little conversation about purification? Why bring that up? And I think John is very intentional about that. First, remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the first sign, remember when Jesus changed the water to wine? Do you remember what the vessels were that he put the wine into? What were they used for? Purification. They were for that Jewish rite of purification. Normally they were filled up with water and people would douse themselves, cleanse themselves with that. And so it's almost like John is saying, hey, remember this? Jesus changed that purification water into wine, implying that something else is happening. But it also continues with, with a theme that we see throughout the, the Gospel of John and that that is this idea of replacement. Jesus is replacing so many of the old Jewish rituals. He replaced the water of purification with the wine of the new covenant. We saw last week that he really was replacing the, the stone of the temple with his body, a living temple. And so now John seems to be pointing out, seems to be raising our attention that maybe Jesus is doing something again. He's replacing that purification with something else. 
But I think there's something else that, that we need to pay attention to. And that is that John's disciples are concerned about the fact that all these people are going after Jesus. Well, if they all go that way, then John, you won't have any followers. And it's almost like they were concerned. They missed the point that, that John was all about Jesus and not about himself. And it, it, they may have been reluctant to give up their allegiance and devotion to John. And yet John, he it looks like I can almost imagine he's smiling because he's, he's not worried about this at all. In fact, secondly, in this next section, we see John's joyful waning. In verses 27 to 30, see, John was not intimidated by Jesus' growing ministry. In fact, it was the very reason he came. Look at what he says there, starting in verse 27. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And here's where the wedding analogy comes in. The one who, who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He is joyful. He's rejoicing over the fact that all these people are going to him. But I think what's important is John knew his place. John knew that it wasn't about him. He knew he was calling people to repentance, not so they could follow him, but so they could follow God ultimately through Jesus Christ. And yet just as when you get to the end of a wedding and you're one of the attendants or you're standing there and you know that they've been the new bride and groom have turned around and been presented as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, as the groomsmen or the bridesmen, you know that your job is complete. You help them get there to some degree, mainly by looking pretty. But you, you were a part of that. You're excited. There's joy and there's the party that's to follow. And in Jewish culture, they would, they would spend several days celebrating a wedding. And so as the friend of the groom, he knew he would, that was his job. That was his job. He was not the focal point of the wedding. And so John concludes this section with verse 30. With this, with his whole attitude, his whole mindset. That he must increase and I must decrease. He was all about Jesus. He was all about preparing the way and then getting out of the way. And John's entire outlook and the focus of his ministry seemed to point to the fact, thirdly, that Jesus is supreme and he is the source. So after John the Baptist has this conversations with his disciples, the apostle John, the writer, steps in and he brings in a sort of commentary. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize, think, think a bit about who John's initial audience was. Because John wrote this toward the latter end of the, really the, probably the final third of the first century. And a lot of John's ministry after Jesus was raised from the dead was in and around the city of Ephesus. And, and in that time, there were, there were a handful of churches, a handful of groups of believers. You couldn't really call them believers. But there were people who were following John the Baptist and not following Jesus. 
They were buying into this heresy that really it was all about John the Baptist and not about Jesus. And so it's almost like John the Apostle. I know all these Johns. It's so confusing. John the Apostle is trying to help them understand, no, it is not about the Baptist at all. It is about Jesus. Look at what he says here in verse 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. A couple of years ago, when our two oldest kids, Zach and Mel, were in high school, they had a, a, a really wonderful English, or not English, history teacher. And um, in fact, there's some Netflix history series that you can watch, and he's one of the commentators on it. It's really kind of cool. It's like, yay, go Mr. Brownworth. But one of the things he kept telling his students, he said, don't pay attention only to what historians would want you to hear about events of the past. You see, and so often a good historian is going to go right to the source documents. They want to get first account material in order to understand what is happening. And there's always going to be biases. There's always going to be things like that. But he said, I want you to go to the source. And it's almost like what John the Apostle is saying here is that Jesus is the source. Don't go to all these other circumstances, all these other material, all these other things. Go to him. He is the one who came from heaven. And he's not discounting John the Baptist in any way, but instead is trying to help people see that Jesus is the source. He came from heaven. He, he came from above. And as a result, he is above all and he is supreme. One of the commentators that I've been looking at, a guy named Bruce Milne, notes that Jesus' supremacy or his, his preeminence is described in these verses in three different ways. First of all, his, he is supreme in his origin. Jesus is from above, from heaven, the very, from the very presence and the heart of God. Conversely, John the Baptist is from earth. He had this heavenly mission, but he's from here. His source comes from here. And their origins are vastly different. And last week, if, if you remember, when we talked about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, remember, he told Nicodemus, he said, do not be surprised when I tell you, you must be born again. And that word again, remember, we talked about the fact that again could mean born from above. John uses that very same word here when he says that Jesus is from above. It's the Greek word anothen. He's telling him, look, He's calling us, have a physical birth, have a new spiritual birth, be born from above. Well, Jesus, his first birth was from above. But secondly, not only is Jesus supreme in his origin, but he is supreme in his testimony. Think about this. Imagine all the things that being part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, all of the things that Jesus saw from the beginning of everything. 
before we could even begin to account time. He, there was an, an eternity prior to that. There's knowledge and information that he has. His, his, and that information goes back before the beginning of time. And I think John uses an interesting word picture here. In fact, if you look in, um, in verse 33, he says, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We don't often think about seals. We, we have little sticky seals that we can put on envelopes to make sure they stay shut so that nobody else reads it except the person that it's intended to. But one of the things that would happen back in, in the first century is when a ruler or a, a dignitary or somebody would have a decree, they'd write, have someone write it out, they'd sign it, they would roll it up and put a piece of wax, like molten wax, on, this, on the seam. And then they would take their signet ring and press it into that so everybody would know this is a decree of that leader, of that ruler. So whether or not you could, you could read, even illiterate people would know that is the king's seal. And I think one of the beautiful things that John is doing here is he's saying, hey, look, when we receive his testimony, that we are setting our seal, setting the seal of our lives on the fact that God is true. But Milne notes that there's one more area of Jesus' preeminence or his supremacy, and that is he is the supreme resource. We see that in verse 35, where it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Because God has given everything into Jesus, he is the possessor of everything. We can and should go to him for everything. For knowledge, for hope, for understanding, for healing, forgiveness, direction, strength, and so much more. In fact, if you want to just jot down this this um, reference, Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty, the apostle Paul reflects on on Jesus' character and his supremacy in this way. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So the charge for us is really to consider the source, to go back and look at the source document, look at the source material. And so John concludes this section with a clear call, making distinction between those who believe and those who don't believe. And this is something he does over and over again in his book. Look at verse 36. Of John chapter 3. And the apostle writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, as he's done before and he'll do time and time again, John is calling us to take this information, take this knowledge, take this experience, or if you want to use a fancy Bible word, this pericope, this little mini section of Scripture, and, and respond. 
And He's calling us to respond with belief. So the question is, do you believe? Have you trusted in Him? Have you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross? Do you have eternal life in Him? If you don't feel like you do, let's get together this week and talk about it. Let's understand what it means to believe. But I want us to think through a couple of practical, hopefully practical applications, the kind of the so what. So John wrote all this stuff. We know that it started with a baptism battle and John's you know, joyously waning, stepping aside so that Jesus can have center stage. We also are challenged by the fact that Jesus is the source. He is the material. He is the, the, the origin of all that we have in our faith. So what? So what should we do? How should we respond? And I think we should respond in three ways. First, we should rejoice when other ministries grow, especially when they are faithfully preaching the word and serving Jesus. I think the, John the Baptist modeled this beautifully for us when he said, no, he must increase. It's all about him anyways. You see, we can easily get hung up on disputes between modes and amounts of water used in baptism. Should we sprinkle or should we dunk? It's easy for us to compete with other churches over how many people are joining or how many people are there. It's easy for us to, to, to compare all these things. It's easy to change up our techniques and philosophy of ministry in order to manipulate growth, to follow the latest trends. I might offend a couple people with this, but I'm sorry. I was listening to a podcast this week. And uh, on the podcast, some of the guys were, were, were they were talking about churches and, and things like that. And, and, and so the guest on the podcast said that, yes, there was a church. There's, there are several, this is happening in a lot of different places. But there, there's a church up in Michigan. No offense to any Michiganders. <laughs> There's a church in Michigan, and during the midst of, of the pandemic, they experienced extreme growth. They were running two, three hundred people. Now they're nine hundred to a thousand, and everyone's like, "Whoa, what is it?" The host, you know, didn't didn't know, but he had a guess, and he said it wasn't that they're preaching the gospel more clearly. He said it wasn't that they're um, doing more outreach. It wasn't that they're doing any of those things. But they changed their message to be a political message. And so what was happening is they were bringing people in from other churches that might not have held the same political views. So they were gathering around politics amidst the pandemic and not around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not a ministry that we should celebrate. We need to celebrate and rejoice when other ministries are growing Because they're preaching the word of God. This is our source document. We're called to preach and teach the word, making disciples and baptizing. Recognizing it is God who controls the growth. He controls the outcome. We can certainly continue to mature and grow. And I think we need to adjust some of the ways that we do ministry in order to reach the world around us. We can't use 1950s methodologies to reach 21st century people. But we must do that without compromising biblical principles. And like John, 
we should rejoice when Jesus is glorified, whether it's in the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or the Episcopal church, even the Catholic church. We should rejoice when God's word is preached and people are coming to true faith and repentance. Second, we should joyfully fulfill our ministry assignments knowing that we are serving Jesus. Let's think about this for a moment. You see, John the Baptist had a clear ministry and purpose. He was clearly given a mission, and his mission was actually quite short. And yet he joyfully served for Jesus' glory. But I want us to think about, what about us? What are the things that Jesus has called us to? See, whether it's teaching in Sunday school, or serving in Kids Connection, Greeting on Sunday mornings, planning and preparing worship services, sorting clothes at the thrift shop. I mean, I know there's, you're taking all these people's leftovers and making sure they're in the right spot. Yeah, go Sandy. Or counseling that misguided friend when they call you on the phone, asking for help. Calling someone when the Holy Spirit prompts you saying, hey, check on them. We should find joy in that service, whatever way that God has called us to minister. I realize, those of you guys who are teachers, preparing a lesson each and every week is challenging. Those of you guys who are professional teachers, you do it every day, so we've got nothing nothing on you. But what about ministry in daily life? Those of you who are parents, think about this, that, that, that daily discipline of, discipling our children that battle that struggle between the world and scripture and helping them see that our life our faith is not a faith that is one day a week but our faith is something that happens day in and day out in faithful obedience to Christ can we consider chores around the house an act of worship In everything, do it without grumbling or complaining. Or what about the joy of working past the inconvenience of hospitality to share a meal with someone, to connect with them? There's something beautiful that happens when you're across the table. And now that the pandemic is kind of stepping aside, there's less discomfort in being face-to-face, sharing a meal There's something beautiful that happens when we can connect in that way. But but students, I want to just encourage you too. I know that life in school is full of challenges. It's full of temptations. It's full of influences. And it sometimes might be easier just to start talking like everybody else. Start dressing like everybody. Start acting like everybody else. But I want to encourage you to stand firm. Find joy in fulfilling the ministry assignment that God has placed before you. God has you where he has you for a reason. And it's okay to dare to be different. It's okay to stand up. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because in all of these things, and I could, we could go on and mention all sorts of different ministries that God has called us to construction ministry, tearing down houses, giving away, all these things. 
we are ultimately about our Father's business. It's not our business. It's our Father's business. But there's one final thing that I think we need to consider. Well, I guess really the question is, are you and I faithfully serving the groom? Or are we serving ourselves? But finally, we need to receive the testimony of Jesus knowing that it is primary source material. There's a lot of good material about the Bible and Christianity available. There are books and articles and podcasts and commentaries and sermons and videos and all this. And it's easy to go to those things and, and replace. Say, oh, let, me, let me listen about Scripture instead of reading Scripture. Let me listen about Jesus instead of reading what Jesus said. And so I want to just encourage us. We should never replace God's word with those things. We need to go to the source. We can use those things, but put them in their place as subservient to Scripture. Each week I I do use commentaries and I use resources in in preparing. And my hope is that I'm using those to understand the culture, understand things that happened 2,000 years ago that I'm just, I'm too young to know. But we have to recognize Scripture is our primary source, our textbook and our specific revelation of God. And we see that most clearly in Jesus Christ. So because Jesus is from above and is above all and the source, when he speaks his testimony, he reveals what is true about God. And so I guess I want to ask us finally, is your faith and is my faith based on primary source material? Or are we basing it on the shallow substitutes of what we can easily get, what we can easily download? what we can easily watch. Stay connected to the source. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for for your word, for the way that it guides us and challenges us. Lord, forgive us when we when we go to that low-hanging fruit, those things that seem easy and palatable, those things that contradict your word and yet don't always seem like they do. Father, forgive us, I pray, when we think the ministry that we're a part of is is about us instead of the way that you've called us to pour into others for your glory. Help us to daily remember that we are about your business. May we rejoice when you are glorified and honored everywhere. God, we pray that you be glorified through us. Help us to walk faithfully before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.